Now, when we think upon the times, the culture, and the world in which we live, it's easy to be pessimistic, it's easy to be negative, it's easy to be gloomy, it's easy to be despondent and despairing. And I'm not denying that there are indeed many realities in this present day that are very discouraging, especially from a biblical perspective. And as Christians, we need to be in touch with truth and reality. However, it is not wholesome, it's not right, it's not biblical to be pessimistic, to be negative, to be gloomy, to be despondent, to be despairing. After all, is not the Lord Jesus Christ presently reigning and ruling all things after the counsel of his all-wise and sovereign will? And he's doing that from his throne in glory. So when you think of that reality, you can see there's no need to be gloomy, even though things are truly very spiritually dark in our day and age. And when we consider the present age in which we live, one can understand why many people, including many professing Christians, desire only to hear positive things. They desire to only hear uplifting messages because the world is so dark and discouraging. And of course, Christians do have the most wonderful and truly positive and uplifting message which could ever be heard, even the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, left the glories of heaven, took on flesh and blood in the incarnation at Christmas time, and became this unique God-man. And he did so in order to live a perfect, sinless life on behalf of sinners who would trust in him. And he also then died on a cross as a sacrifice for sin and for sinners, for all who are helpless and hopeless in themselves, who trust in him alone, they will receive forgiveness for all their sins, cleansing and pardon. And at the point of death, they will be brought into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. So that is a wonderful truly positive, in the best sense, message that could ever be heard. And as we proclaim this good news about the Lord Jesus Christ, we must not, however, avoid the proclamation of the whole counsel of God. Even though we live in dark times spiritually, we must proclaim those biblical truths which tell us of the sinfulness of men, which tell us of the holiness of God, which speak of justice, God's justice, and God's judgment upon sin, and the wrath of God, and the reality of heaven, and the reality of a hell. We must do that. We must not just give the positive things that people want to hear. As one contemporary Christian pastor and author has stated, here I quote him, modern people do not like the ideas of wrath, judgment, vengeance, eternal punishment, and hell. Such notions are considered unpleasant, discouraging, and even primitive. God has been receiving a makeover for some time now, as his so-called harsher attributes have been toned down or eliminated, and his so-called softer attributes are highlighted. Modern people have tamed, T-A-M-E-D, tamed, and civilized, as it were, the God of the Bible, end quote. Of course, he's highlighting how wrong that is, as it uh, should be clear. But another Christian writer has stated, today, the holiness of God is given inhospitable treatment. People don't want to hear about the holiness of God, you see. They don't want to hear about it because, of course, it shines light upon the reality of their sin. So this author said, today, the holiness of God is given inhospitable treatment. The modern church wants therapy, not redemption. The modern church wants to be happy, 
not holy. The modern church wants to feel good, not to be good. The modern church wants to avoid pain. They do not want to avoid sin. When speaking biblical truth to unconverted men, women, and children, we who are genuine believers must be faithful like the prophets in the scriptures, faithful like the apostles in the Bible, faithful like the Lord Jesus Christ. God's love of vital reality and a glorious and wonderful truth found in the Bible should never cancel out the vital reality and truth of God's holiness and his hatred of sin. The Puritan Stephen Charnock, and for those who may not be familiar with the Puritans, they were English Protestants who lived in the 16th and 17th centuries. The Puritan Stephen Charnock wrote, Sinners will own God and his power when they stand in need of deliverance. They will own God and his mercy when they are plunged in distress. But they will not imitate him in his holiness. To own all of God's attributes and deny God this attribute of holiness is to frame God as an unbeautiful monster, a deformed power. Indeed, all sin is against this attribute of God's holiness. All sin aims, in general, at the being of God, but in particular at the holiness of God's being. End quote. You see what Stephen Charnock was saying? Sin attacks, as it were, the living God at the heart of his holiness. His very being is holy, as we've just sung, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And sin attacks the very holiness of God. So that's an introduction to our topic this morning. But now let's consider a definition, or I should say definitions or explanations of God's holiness. So first of all, God's holiness is infinite. And when we see that God is infinite in his being, we mean that God transcends all spatial limitations. God is immediately present in every part of his creation, and that everything and everybody are immediately in God's presence. That's what we mean when we speak of God being infinite. And the truth that God is infinite in his being is taught in many scriptures, but we'll just consider two this morning. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 27. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 27. God's holiness is infinite because God himself is infinite. And in 1 Kings 8 verse 27 we read, But will God in very deed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And there we stop the reading. Solomon has built the temple for God's worship in Jerusalem. And these are Solomon's words. He's exclaiming, heaven and the heaven and heavens cannot contain God. Indeed, the house that he built there in Jerusalem could not contain God. And so what we're to understand is that God is infinite in his being. Even the heaven of the heavens cannot contain God. Turn to Jeremiah 23 and verse 23. Jeremiah 23 and verse 23. <clears throat> Am I a God at hand, saith Jehovah, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places so that I shall not see him, 
says Jehovah. Do not I fill heaven and earth, says Jehovah. And there we stop the reading. You see here again in words to help us understand who God is. Jehovah declares, do not I fill heaven and earth, not meaning that he cannot go beyond heaven and earth, but trying to help us to understand that you cannot contain God. God is indeed not contained by spatial limitations. He's immediately present in every part of his creation. God is infinite, and therefore, when we assert that God is infinitely holy, we mean that God's holiness cannot be measured. It can't be quantified. It can't be limited in any way whatsoever. And this is hard for us to grasp, but we are to use our minds to try to grapple with these biblical realities. But secondly, God's holiness is eternal. And when we state that God is eternal, we mean that God has always existed in the past and always will exist in the future. He never began to be. He never began to be. He knows no growth or aging, and nor will he ever cease to be. There's no beginning, no ending. He is eternal. And the reality of God's eternal being is, again, taught in numerous passages. Turn to Genesis 21 and verse 33. Genesis 21 and verse 33. Genesis 21, 33. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of Jehovah, the everlasting God. You see, God had revealed himself to Abraham Abraham understood that he is the everlasting God. No beginning, no ending. Turn to Psalm 90 and verse 1. Psalm 90 and verse 1, a psalm written by Moses. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so there we have this declaration again of the eternal being of God from everlasting to everlasting. And now turn to Isaiah 57, <clears throat> where we tie together this attribute of God and his holiness with God being eternal. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. So God is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, his name is holy. Because God is eternal in his being, he is also eternal in his holiness. But thirdly, God's holiness is unchangeable. The Bible, again, clearly teaches this reality that God does not and cannot change. He always remains one and the same true God, faithful to himself, his decrees, and his works. Turn to Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. Malachi 3 and verse 6, seeing the truth that God is unchangeable. For I, Jehovah, change not. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. And then James 1 verse 17 in the New Testament. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom can be no variation, neither shadow that is cast by turning. So here in James 1.17, actually, we see those two realities, those two truths. God doesn't change. 
He never turns and, as it were, his shadow changes. God doesn't change, and he's called the Father of Lights. And in the Bible, often this is referring to God's holiness in contrast to darkness, to sinfulness. And because God is unchangeable, his holiness also is unchangeable. One more passage concerning this truth, Revelation 4 and verse 8. Revelation 4 and verse 8. And the four living creatures, having each one of them six wings, are full of eyes round about and within. And they have no rest day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. He is unchangeable, and he is the Lord God, the Almighty, and he is holy, holy, holy. God's holiness, like God himself, is unchangeable. But in the fourth place, God's holiness is or speaks of separation. Separation. We don't usually think of that reality ourselves as Christians. We think of some other legitimate realities. But first of all, God's holiness is separation or speaks of separation. The Hebrew and Greek words which are used to speak of God's holiness have this basic meaning of separation or being apart. In other words, we are to understand that God in his holiness is separate from his creatures. He is in his holiness unapproachable and transcendent as God over all. Turn in your Bibles now to Isaiah 6 and verse 1. Isaiah 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And his train, his robes that followed behind him, filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Jehovah of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Jehovah of hosts. And there we stop our reading. Now, the Apostle John tells us, you don't need to turn there, but in John chapter 12, verses 40 and 41, the Apostle John tells us that it was upon the pre-incarnate Son of God in all of his glory that Isaiah was gazing. In this passage in Isaiah 6, the Apostle John tells us that. And Robert Raymond, in his systematic theology, highlights in this passage the reality of God's holiness as separation between God the Creator and man the creature. And here I quote him. And you need to understand what he's saying. I think you will easily understand it. Here's what Robert Raymond wrote concerning this passage in Isaiah 6. Now, when Isaiah saw this awesome scene and heard these four creatures speaking, he was immediately struck with his moral impurity. Notice that in verse 5 of Isaiah 6. What did he say? Woe is me! 
I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. So he was struck with his own moral impurity. Dr. Raymond goes on. But what is often overlooked is that the seraphs in Isaiah 6 are sinless creatures. And yet, in the presence of God the Son, they feel it necessary continually to cover themselves all over by their wings. Clearly for them, God's holiness was his separateness from them due to God's transcendence over against their creatureliness, end quote. Do you understand what Robert Raymond is saying here? These seraphim, they were not sin sinful creatures. They were sinless, but still they covered themselves, their eyes, their feet, because of the holiness of God, because of this reality that God is so far removed from us as creatures, even these sinless creatures. The reality of God in his holiness being separate from his creatures is revealed in many other scriptures, but we'll look at one additional passage, and it's in Isaiah, Isaiah 57 and verse 15. We actually have already looked at this verse. We'll just look at it again, Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. You see this separateness. But notice also in this passage, the gracious condescension of our holy, H-O-L-Y, our holy and separate God. For Isaiah 57, 15 concludes with these astonishing and encouraging words. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite. It would be good for all of us to stop and think and meditate upon Isaiah 57, 15. Though God is holy, thrice holy, separate from sinners, yet he does condescend to reach the contrite and humble individual. So when you as a Christian are convicted of the reality of your remaining sins, and you think you cannot approach unto God because he is so holy. Well, in one way you're right. You cannot approach unto God who is thrice holy apart from Jesus Christ and the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. But here in Isaiah 57, 15, you are encouraged to see with humility, with contrition, conviction of sin to indeed Go and approach that holy God through Jesus Christ. And he indeed will receive you in Jesus Christ. But now in the fifth place, God's holiness is absolute purity. It's separateness from us as creatures and as sinners. And God's holiness is also absolute purity. We must understand that God is truly, transcendently separate, but he is also ethically separate from us as sinners. Turn to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1. God is ethically separate from us as sinners. He's absolutely holy. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the wilderness and came to the mountain of God unto Horeb. 
And the angel of Jehovah appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside now and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when Jehovah saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not near here. Put off your shoes from off your feet, for the place whereon you stand is holy ground. And there we stop the reading. So in this history, God condescended to reveal himself to Moses. And when Moses drew near to the burning bush that was not being consumed by the flames, God commanded Moses to remove his shoes. And God gave Moses the reason for this command. God said, the ground upon which you, Moses, are standing is holy ground. And why was it holy ground? It was in the wilderness. It was in no place special, but it was now special because God himself was present. God is intrinsically and completely holy, and Moses was a sinful creature. And because of his sin, Moses was separated from God, ethically speaking. And numerous scriptures reveal the reality that God is absolute purity, infinitely, eternally, unchangeably so with regard to his being, his character, his thoughts, and his actions and words. And here we see this in Exodus 3, that God is indeed holy, and Moses is the sinner separated from God. Turn now to Leviticus 19 and verse 1. Leviticus 19 and verse 1. And Jehovah spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, You shall be holy, for I, Jehovah your God, am holy. So why should they be holy? They're not natively holy, because God himself is holy. God is revealing how different he is from sinners. Turn to Psalm 5 and verse 4. Psalm 5 and verse 4. For you are not a God that has pleasure in wickedness. Evil shall not sojourn with you. The arrogant shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You will destroy them that speak lies. Jehovah abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. There we stop our reading. You see here in this passage in Psalm 5, God has no pleasure in wickedness because he's holy. Evil will not dwell with God because God is holy. God will not allow the arrogant, the proud, to stand in his sight because he is holy. God hates with a holy hatred all workers of iniquity. He will destroy those that speak lies. He abhors the bloodthirsty, deceitful man. Why? Because God is holy. These are realities. Turn now to Habakkuk 1 and verse 13. Habakkuk 1 and verse 13. Habakkuk 1, verse 13. You that are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and that cannot look on perverseness. And the verse continues, but I'll focus just on this beginning portion of verse 13. God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. 
Obviously, God does know everything. God does see everything. God does see the reality of sin in our hearts, in our lives, in this world. But the point that is being made is that God is thrice holy. He does not take any pleasure in evil or sin. He does not take any delight in it. He is of pure eyes then to do so. Because God is holy and absolute purity, the Bible makes it plain that God never delights in any sin, and he truly detests sin. Indeed, God will perpetually hate sin and express his displeasure against sin. And this truth sheds light on two other important realities taught in the Bible. The fact that God takes no pleasure in sin. He detests sin. He hates sin. This sheds light on two other Bible realities. The reality of eternal punishment for the impenitent in hell. That is a reality because of God's holiness. The reality, secondly, of the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ in his death on the cross under the righteous wrath of God in the place of his believing people, his elect, his chosen ones, all who believe in Christ. Those two realities are realities because of the reality of the holiness of God. So those are definitions, as it were, descriptions, explanations in part of the Bible's teaching about God and his holiness. But now let's consider what I'm calling the preeminence of God's holiness. Turn to Isaiah 6 once again. Isaiah 6 and verse 1. It is really a very important passage in the Bible concerning the holiness of God and now the preeminence of God's holiness. Isaiah 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Jehovah of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We pause there. And of course, in Revelation, this is repeated, this holy, holy, holy. So have you ever asked the question, why is it holy, holy, holy three times. Hopefully you've asked that question of yourself when you've read this passage or the Revelation passage. Why? Well, the Old Testament scholar, uh, J.A. Motier, I think I pronounced that correctly. Pastor Carlson can tell me if I'm wrong on that pronunciation. He died in the year 2016, so he's not alive with us, but he's not someone from the distant past. He wrote this concerning Isaiah 6 in these verses, in this reality. He said Hebrew, meaning the language, Hebrew uses repetition to express superlatives or indicate totality, such as in verse 3, with the threefold repetition of holy, holy, holy. Holiness is supremely the truth about God. This threefold repetition indicates God's total and unique moral majesty. End quote. So did the seraphim say, grace, grace, grace? Did the seraphim say, love, love, love? Did they repeat, wrath, wrath, wrath? No, they did not. But they declared, holy, holy, holy. 
In other words, holiness is God's defining and distinguishing characteristic, which is evident when we read through the Bible. Holiness, as one other writer, Richard Muller said, pervades all of God's actions. Holiness interprets all of God's other attributes. Now, I have to admit, when I read that, these very statements, I thought, is that, is that true? Is that accurate? Is that biblically accurate? And I wrestled with it. And I'm not a scholar like these men that I've just quoted. The more I thought about it, the more I thought, no, it is true. Holiness pervades all of God's actions and interprets all of his other attributes. He is holy in his love. He is holy in his judgments. He is holy in his wrath. He is holy in his goodness. Holiness pervades all of God's actions, interprets all of his other attributes. So let's turn to just a few passages to underscore this. Turn to Exodus 15 and verse 11. Exodus 15 and verse 11. Who is like unto you, O Jehovah, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? See, glorious in holiness. Psalm 89 and verse 35. Once have I sworn by my holiness... I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. You see there in Psalm 89, God is making a promise. And he says, I swear, what? By my justice? By my love? No, by my holiness. Psalm 98 and verse 1. His right hand and his holy arm has wrought salvation for him. The holiness of God, his holy arm. Everything associated with God is also holy. The Sabbaths instituted by God in the Old Testament are called holy Sabbaths, Exodus 16. Heaven is called God's holy heaven, Psalm 20. God sits upon his holy throne, Psalm 47. Worship is to be done in the beauty of holiness and with holy fear, Psalm 96. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the Holy One of God, Mark 1. The Spirit of God is called the Holy Spirit. God the Father is called God, uh, excuse me, Holy Father by Jesus in John 17. Christians are to purify themselves and be holy because God is holy, 1 Peter 1. Christians are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 1 Peter chapter 2. Holiness, you see, is the beauty of all of God's attributes without which his wisdom, and here I'm quoting another Puritan now, without which his wisdom would be simple subtlety. In other words, something superficial. His justice without holiness would be cruelty. His sovereignty without holiness would be tyranny. His mercy without holiness would be foolish pity. That's what one Puritan wrote. Holiness is the beauty of all of God's attributes. And we need to understand this. But now God's holiness is manifested in a variety of ways of course, in the scriptures, in these passages, but in particular, it is manifested in God's law. Turn to Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. God's holiness is manifested in God's law. Romans 7 and verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Howbeit I had not known sin, the Apostle Paul wrote, except through the law. 
For I had not known coveting, except the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, finding occasion, wrought in me through the commandment all manner of coveting. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was alive apart from the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was unto life, this I found to be unto death. For sin, finding occasion through the commandment, beguiled me, and through it slew me. Verse 12, so that the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and righteous, and good. You see, the law of God is not something to be disdained by the Christian. And it's amazing to me how many professing Christians, or even real Christians, not just professing Christians, get confused on this reality in our day. I had somebody recently quote me a passage and say, you see, the law is no longer relevant for the Christian. And I said, well, let's look at the context. It wasn't referring at all to what that person said. It was highlighting the fact that we're not justified by our law-keeping. You see, we are not justified by our obedience, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone. But the law is holy, the commandment holy. It guides us because it shows us God's holy character. God cannot lie. God does not lie. God will never lie. Why? Because God is thrice holy. He cannot lie. He will not lie. He does not lie. And therefore, you as a Christian, because God is holy and his commandment is holy, you can fully trust in God's truth in the gospel and trust in Jesus Christ without any hesitation. You see, the law reveals the holiness of God. But God's holiness is manifested in his attitude toward good and evil, God's attitude, if I can use those words, God's uh, perspective, thinking, attitude towards sin and righteousness. He loves righteousness, and no evil may dwell with him. And because God is holy, he hates sin, and God hates those who commit sin and iniquity. In Psalm 5, we already saw this. You are not a God that has pleasure in wickedness. Evil will not sojourn with you. You hate all workers of iniquity. In Proverbs chapter 6, we see that God hates pride. Pride is sin. Pride in all of its manifestations is sin. And God hates it. It's amazing we, we can say to ourselves or say to others, I know that God hates murder. He does, of course. I know that God hates sexual uncleanness. He does, of course. But God hates pride. He hates the lying tongue in Proverbs 6. Murder, false witnesses, troublemakers, those who are swift to do evil. God hates idolatry of every sort. And many sins in the Bible are declared to be an abomination unto God. And in order to underscore the evil of sin and God's detestation of it, in the Bible, God uses vivid language to describe sin, which arrests our attention. It should grip our affections. It should sober our judgment in order to move us to despise our sins in particular, to repent from our sins in particular, and to flee to Jesus Christ by faith. Think of this now in the Bible. God compares sin to the smell of an open grave in Psalm 5 and Romans 3. God compares sin to the poison of snakes in Psalm 140. Romans 3 as well, to the vomit of a dog. 2 Peter 2, to the mire in which a pig wallows. I've only been to a pig farm, I'm not sure if that's the right term for it, once. Once was enough. It's absolutely disgusting. 
to see what these pigs do. And so God says, he's comparing this to the mire in which a pig wallows. God compares sin to the menstrual impurity of a woman. He compares sin to the harlotry of an unfaithful woman. We see that in Ezekiel. Why does God do this? He's not a shock jock. He's not trying to shock people in one sense, in a carnal, worldly way. No, but to get our attention, to begin to see how absolutely terrible and detestable our sin is. And how absolutely wonderfully pure and holy God is. God's holiness is manifested in God's Son. The Lord Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature, Hebrews 1. Philip said unto the Lord Jesus Christ on one occasion, Show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. And what did Jesus say unto him? He said, Have I been so long time with you, Philip, and you do not know me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, Show us the Father? So would we fuller, more fully understand the holiness of God? We see it throughout the scriptures, but we should especially focus upon the life, the words, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ignore the Old Testament, but focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But God's holiness is especially manifested in his deliverance of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to death on the cross. By the blood and the death and the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ, sinners may be righteously delivered from the wrath of God by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness. I have said, I think, publicly, I know I've said privately, that when I read and a variety of excellent Christian books, an author writing saying, we need to focus on the cross of Christ. Or even Paul to the Corinthians. He preached Christ crucified. But when I read that or when I hear that, I say, okay, what does that mean? I hope when you're reading your Bible or reading a good Christian book and you encounter something and you say, I think this is true, but I don't really understand it. I hope you pray and say, Lord, I don't understand this. Help me to understand this. What does this mean? So in God's deliverance of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ to death on the cross, God's holiness is especially probably in a most uh, remarkable zenith-like way, is manifested. I know I quoted from others, but I'm going to quote now from another Puritan. And please don't be intimidated, but I think this is helpful. This is Stephen Charnock, The writer of the book here that I'm reading says, Charnock uses vivid imagery to capture this all-important point. And now here's Charnock. Not all the vials of judgments that have or shall be poured out upon the wicked world, nor the flaming furnace of a sinner's conscience, nor the irrevocable sentence pronounced against the rebellious devils, nor the groans of the damned creatures give such a demonstration of God's hatred of sin as the wrath of God let loose upon his Son. God the Father would have the most excellent person, one next in order to himself, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, and equal to him in all the glorious perfections of his nature, die on a disgraceful cross and be exposed to the flames of divine wrath, rather than sin should live and God's holiness remain forever disparaged by the violations of his law. God seems to lay aside the bowels of a father and he put on the clothing of an irreconcilable enemy when he put his son to death on the cross for the sins of his people. As the holiness of God is manifested in the death of Christ, so is the holiness of God shown in the person of Christ. Christ is the image of God's holiness. And since God in his glory is too dazzling to be beheld by us, the incarnation makes it possible for the elect to not only behold the holiness of God in the face of Jesus Christ, but also to become holy like God through Jesus Christ. We need to realize that God hates sin, and that's why Jesus Christ died on the cross under the wrath of God. And there we see God's justice. There we also see God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And there at the cross, with the death of the Son of God, we see God's holiness as well. And so the word in closing to everyone is one of my favorite uh, passages in the New Testament. I've quoted it many times, so have many other pastors and preachers, where Jesus, when he was on earth, said to the multitude, and here I'm quoting the Lord Jesus to this small multitude, come unto me, all you who labor, labor under the guilt of sin, labor under the burden of sin. Come unto me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. So on this Christmas Eve, may everyone Go to Jesus Christ, the living Savior, for forgiveness of sin and for a sight of the holiness of God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand and to grasp with the eye of faith the reality of your holiness and the awfulness of our own sinfulness. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, that he is the omnipotent Savior, the only Savior of sinners like ourselves. And we ask that even during this Christmas season, that the gospel would be proclaimed and that you, by your sovereign power, would save sinners even this very day. We ask for these mercies with our thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.